Ooh. Hey, there we go. Hi, everybody. How are you? My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 186 of my live chat. I hope you're doing well. Uh, as you can see, I'm not completely washed today. The lady who cut my hair many years ago was back in town, and she was like, do you want a haircut? And I was like, uh, sure, I sure do. So I got one from her, and I feel a lot better. She trimmed my beard up as well. I look, uh, you know, not great, but certainly halfway presentable. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. So on the docket today, I'm going to guess UFC 300 stuff. I'm going to guess 2024 stuff. I'm going to guess whatever else is on your mind. That's what we're going to get to. We do an hour for free on the thread that I put up on the community tab at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. And then if you have any donations you'd like to put in, We'll get to those questions attached to them uh, at the end of the free session. By the way, you're under no obligation to give anything. If you just want to watch the whole thing for free, that's cool too. By the way, you can see here below, you can support the channel by becoming a member at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas slash join. And if you do that, you can ask any of these questions in the paid period for free. Uh, hopefully some other benefits to come. All right. Um, really appreciate you guys joining me. Thank you so much on this wonderful day here in the nation's capital. And uh, yeah, without further ado, why don't we get this party started? And we're back. All right. Man, did you guys see what's happening or what is happening, I should say, and has been happening for some time, but I sort of reached a zenith. What day is it today? Thursday. So I think yesterday or Tuesday in Ecuador. Oh, <laughs> Good Lord. Um, rough times in Ecuador, man. Rough times. Um, apparently, the American and European appetite for cocaine is destabilizing Latin America. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Uh, well, everybody. Every security expert on Earth has been sort of warning about this. But nevertheless, um, terrible times for the people of Ecuador. Um, all right. With that lovely preamble out of the way, um, let's get this party started, shall we? All right. So let's turn off the ticker. There we are. Very good. By the way, I tweeted about it because I was so distraught. I had to go to the gym today and I put my headphones on. I don't have them with me. I have the Bose uh, over the ears headphones and uh, they died after the warm up when I was on the first set of the first exercise and I almost cried. I almost cried. So I had to do the entire thing listening to the house music, which was like 1990s unmemorable R&B that sounded like Europeans had made it. Truly generic, just ass-wipe music. And uh, it was terrible. It was terrible. But I gutted through it, and we're ready to go for today. All right, let's get these questions going if we can, ladies and gents. Let's do it. There we are. And then we put that in there. Boom. All right. Very good. By the way, hold on. Let's get the background to that. Okay. Now we're cooking with gas. Here we go. Uh, Luke, I started reading The Housekeeper by the late Josh uh, Saman, and I've been absolutely blown away and unable to put it down. It's an incredibly moving portrayal of love, grief, and what it takes to be a fighter, and I'd highly recommend any other fight fan out there give it a read. I was wondering what your thoughts were on Saman or if you had ever heard of the book. I am aware of the book. Uh, I've not read it. Um... I, don't, I can't say that like I was friends or something with Josh Saman, but I covered his fights and had some interactions with him professionally through the course of work, and uh, he was always an interesting and different guy. It's weird, man. Like, for some reason, you know, this is a, 
to borrow from Bill Hicks, it's a world where like in terms of people, not so much high achievers, but in terms of people, mediocrity thrives. And then the very good men among us are all taken too soon. You could throw in Elias Theodorou on top of that as well. Um, quite regrettable in the end how it's all sort of gone. I, I don't have much to say beyond it except Josh Saman was um, a, a very respected figure. Uh, and his death is incredibly tragic. I think it broke the hearts of many, including the folks at Bloody Elbow. We remember at the time he was writing for them. Um, addiction is an absolute... It's a killer. It's a killer. You know. Um, so, rest in peace to the great Josh Saman. I'm sorry that everything ended the way that it did, but uh, certainly left an imprint in the world, and I think had a great deal of insight into the kind of human experiences that you're describing here. Uh, saying a portrayal of love, grief, and what it takes to be a fighter. Obviously, because he was a fighter, he had the answer to that. But more than that, um, you know, I find that sometimes the most thoughtful fighters, this is not always true, but sometimes the most thoughtful fighters are not necessarily the best ones. There can be some overlap. But certainly you can get a class of guys who are not necessarily the very best you've ever seen who are very thoughtful. And to me, they're actually much more interesting to cover. Um, I would put Matt Brown in that category. Matt Brown, to me, strikes me as a very thoughtful guy. And uh, Corey Sanhagen, you could put in that. He strikes me as a thoughtful guy. Izzy was a champion. I would count him there as well. Doesn't mean they always come to ideas that you like or that you would agree with, but that they have an independent thinking streak about them. I think you tend to get better results over time with more interesting people like that. All right, let's see here. Luke, do you expect the Saudi Arabia fight night in March to be headlined by Sanhagen Nurmagomedov? I've been trying to think of what could headline that card, and other than that, I can't really see any other relevant matchup. Uh, I've not done the digging into the card, although we sort of highlighted the fact that following 299 and 300, they're using vast amount of their resources to make these cards as good as they possibly can be, including title fights. So that one would be available. I do believe that Sanhagen would like to be active in order to, um, you know, he was really distraught when he found out 299 basically was going to be Chito Vera, which is late March. Like, he was really, really, he wanted to fight for the title by April, which obviously is not going to happen. So, and you're mentioning they've got Nurmagomedov on the card, who's obviously a Muslim fighter that will play well to the host nation. Um, But, like, you know, dude, they can, I mean... It's granted it's an apex card and it's not a bad fight, but they've got Hermanson Joe Pfeiffer as a headlining fight. You'd be surprised what they can headline with. You'd be quite surprised. So that would be a suitable headlining fight. It is available. Some of the arrangements line up, but you know, the UFC can go in a lot of directions that you won't necessarily anticipate. Here we go. Uh, Luke, what metrics do you think the UFC uses and references to measure a fighter's popularity or potential popularity slash stardom? Uh, in other words, how do they choose who to push? Partly preference, partly their gut. Um, I would also say if it's, you know, let's just be real about it. The, the, the five most important people as it relates to this conversation would be Dana White, Hunter Campbell, uh, Sean Shelby, Mick Maynard, and... You know, maybe somebody else, uh, Lawrence Epstein or something. It's all guys, all white guys, but it's all guys. So I, I would argue that uh, any attractive female who can fight worth a shit is going to get probably a little bit of a boost more than their, her contemporaries who could be equally as good or even better, but 
are not necessarily as attractive. You can bemoan that practice or you can like that practice, but I do think it is in play whether they acknowledge it as a formal rule or not. Scott Coker played the same game in Strikeforce slash Bellator. Like, promoters do this. They One does this. I mean, they all fucking do this, right? They, they, they know that they've got horny dudes in their audience, and so this is a way to sort of put forward them. Uh, that won't work over time if they can't actually fight all that well, but... You get the idea. However, that's a sort of a separate thing. You're asking, like, who do they, they want to push? I mean, it's a few things, right? I know for a fact that um, Bellator, when they were on Spike TV, for example, when they signed Rampage, they did with something. They did. They paid for a service. You can actually pay for a service. I forget the company that runs it, and you can get something called a Q rating. Uh, and the Q rating, they have their own sort of modeling and mathematical formula for it, but it's basically a sort of combination understanding of not only how well-known someone is, but more than just sort of well-known, uh, how much it's either people are familiar with it and like it on top of it. Like, what kind of feelings do they have towards this otherwise known entity? Um, I know that they paid for that uh, for him to see what his Q rating was. I know they paid for that for other fighters as well. So, one, you can just pay for proprietary services like this. But I've also heard from people, like, for example, when Sean O'Malley was on Fight Pass for... Contender series, my understanding is, again, there are, there could be a debate about to what extent he can pull at the pay-per-view box office, but my understanding is when he was competing on Fight Pass um, for Contender Series and then other sort of moments, his numbers were astronomically high, uh, very, very, very high. So there can be internal metrics about what do they pull on social media. They can even see, hey, this guy all of a sudden, like, for example, I don't know if most people are aware of this. Shavkat Rachmanov has over a million followers on Instagram. I think that might come as a surprise. I don't know how well known he is to American fans, but he is a massive figure in Kazakhstan. So, like, to what extent? Uh, and by the way, there could be like, hey, maybe this guy's popular in a market that we care about, London or the UK. Maybe this guy's popular in a market that we don't really have a future promoting in, which probably could be Kazakhstan. That could affect it as well. But there's any number of social media. What kind of uh, traffic are they driving? Do they have any known popularity in their own? If they're from Dearborn, Michigan, do they have any popularity there as well? Uh, how, how does the press feel about them? What internal, excuse me, what internal metrics might they have? Do they want to pay for a proprietary look at something like Q rating? That kind of a thing. They'll find a way to sort of get a rough approximation about who is visible, who is likable, who they internally feel like is somebody they could get behind, uh, who could be useful for an overseas market. Any of these things will work either in tandem or in hierarchy to get a better picture. And by the way, that's a very inexact science. That is not necessarily all that helpful. It can be helpful at times. There are times when you can just tell someone is big and then they have big numbers, but you already had a feeling about it. Um, and you, or you could just sort of visibly tell, right? Uh, but it's like the NFL draft. I mean, I always, I say this every year, do the NFL and these NFL teams, they spend millions every single year on scouting, identifying talent, setting up, uh, talent evaluation, having a staff to facilitate these needs, everything you could possibly imagine around the draft. And then most of the time they kind of whiff on this or they're 50, 50 at best. It's a very, very difficult process. So none of those things are a surefire guarantee about who will become popular and under what terms. But you have a rough approximation and or proprietary services you can lean on to get a better answer. This person asks, if one close decision in MMA history went the other way, which one do you think would have had the biggest effect on the history of the sport in terms of the GOAT conversation? Ooh. 
I asked this one with one fight in, in, uh, fight in particular in mind, which would be John Jones versus Dominic Reyes. That's the only fight I've ever thought John Jones lost. It's the only one. I know folks feel like maybe the Gustafson fight, people make an argument for the Santos fight, which I think is a terrible argument. The first Gustafson fight's a little bit better to me. The Reyes one, to me, it seems clear he won the first three rounds. And I'm even one of those guys who saw that John blocked or Reyes missed on a lot of stuff. Nevertheless, yes, that would be a huge one. That's a great conversation. So if we're talking about GOAT, we're talking about so Silva, GSP, Jones, Demetrius, maybe Fedor's in that conversation, maybe Aldo's in that conversation. Um, I'll tell you what, here's one. I'm not saying it should have gone the other way, but it started out bad and he rescued it. And I'm wondering, like, you know, maybe if the judges had seen it slightly differently, what could have happened? The first BJ Penn and GSP fight, the first one, which was like a USA versus Canada card. God, what number was that? Was that like UFC 56? What number was that? That felt that felt like forever ago. I lived in uh, I lived on Kenilworth Avenue. If anyone knows where that is, before I, I my I had already purchased my home, but it was under renovation, so I had to rent. But I couldn't. Ha- I didn't have much money, so I had to like stay in like a not a great area. Um, here we go. Yeah, UFC fifty eight. UFC 58, March of 2006. God, fucking lifetime ago. Um, Penn came out in that first round and beat the shit out of GSP. I mean, he put it on him. And GSP kind of rallied and then eventually was able to use takedowns to ultimately win. But, like, you know, maybe I have to go back and watch some of the specifics, but I remember it being very close. Did he ultimately, what, what, yeah, it was a split decision, as a matter of fact. Split decision. If Penn wins that one, now we know what happened ultimately. St. Pierre just kept going and, you know, Penn kept going as well and then fizzled out much earlier. But I wonder what that would have done if he had gotten his ass whooped by it. And that was the first time Penn was back. That was fresh off of his win over Henzo Gracie um, over in K1. So back when Henzo was bragging that, you know, BJ was still in his father's nutsack when he was out doing jiu-jitsu, which... May or may not have been true, but didn't matter ultimately for the fight purposes themselves. In any case, that was a close-ass fight. Very close fight. And if he loses that one, it's not... Because remember, he ultimately lost to Matt Serra as well. I mean, you know, it's the butterfly, butterfly effect. It would have changed any number of things all the way down the line, but that would have been a big one. If he had had if he had lost to Matt Hughes, a loss to Matt Serra, both of those were stoppage losses because he got armbarred by Matt Hughes, he got TKO'd, by him, and then you have a decision loss to BJ Penn, and two of those guys were basically previous lightweights. Not great, right? Not great. Not great for you. Wasn't that right? Wasn't didn't? Am I imagining this? Didn't um, didn't Sarah fight at lightweight? I believe that he did. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. Let me. I can't remember how these details at all anymore. Let me see. Here we go. Yes, of course he did. Um, so. If you would have a two losses to guys who fought at lightweight, that I think would change the conversation pretty substantially. Um, but in the end, he didn't. Let's see here. Luke, why is John Jones's striking power not nearly as devastating as his ground striking? Is it technique, a cautious strategy, or is it just natural ability? It's probably a combination of all three. If you actually watch his striking, a lot of it is linear. Right? A lot of jabs, some hooks over the top, some uppercuts, 
but a lot of it is jab, jab, cross. Then, you know, uh, again, there's hooking. It's not a tremendous, powerful hook that he's like really leaning into. You don't really get that. It's a lot of stuff that maintains range. It enables him to like hand grab and then whip, whip an elbow over the top, stuff like that, which by the way, he'll do on the ground. So partly it's a shot selection type, right? I think also it's sort of a combative posture. He's not necessarily looking for a single knockout blow on the feet. I think he's looking to land, disrupt rhythm, you know, hurt you, obviously, but he's not really looking for that one hit or quitter kind of scenario that he is um, standing. So it's a bit, or then he's on the ground. So there's a bit of a different in, difference in the combat posture. Also, he's working with gravity when he's on top and he's, you know, hitting someone. So he has the, he's kind of fighting a little bit of the gravity here, but when the gravity is on his benefit, it adds a little bit more to it. But I think the biggest part is the technique. You'll see him do the whipping stuff where he's driving off of his feet into an elbow, right? You'll see some of that where you get more force he's generating with a much wider shot, uh, an arcing shot, a hooking shot, um, versus what he's doing in a stand-up version, which is a little bit more, a little bit more linear. Again, the combat posture is somewhat less aggressive. Uh, he's fighting uh, against gravity a little bit versus with it. And then, you know, he's just able to have these, like the torque and the whip that he's able to get on the ground. He just doesn't go for stuff like that standing. He has a much more, I think, healthy respect for what his opponents can do versus when he's on top. Well, now it's time to go. So, you know, he probably could land with more authority standing if he made a series of different choices. He actually does have a very good left hook to the body. John Jones does. He has an excellent left hook to the body, which he can really vary it up with the with the with the looks that he gives. He's very very good about that. So he'll whip into that one a little bit. He'll kind of lean and then kind of dig. He'll do that. But to your point, aforementioned factors, you get a bit of a difference there between his striking style and then his ground striking style. They're really kind of two very different universes, um, even within the same person. All right, let's see here. Look, with the announcement of Dustin coming back at 299 against a streaking Benoit St. Denis, what wrinkles do you think Dustin needs to add to his game to be able to handle the new top threat? I mean, at 34-35, is there really a whole lot you can add to your game? It really is just a function of a game plan at that point. There's only so much you can really get. I mean, he kind of is who he is at this point. If you've been listening to this live chat for a while, you know I've heard me. you've heard me say that. You can alter some things, right? You can definitely alter your strategy, what you go for, what you don't, what you're looking for, what you're not. It's five rounds. I think that probably favors him. A guy like uh, St. Denis probably has great car cardio, but probably, well, definitely just doesn't have deep five-round experience in the way that um, Poirier does. So I think that will serve him well. Um, to me, it's really just a function of a game plan. I don't think that you're trying to like, hey – you know, I'm going to work on inside De La Hiva to, you know, saddle uh, position leg locks. So that you're not really going to do all that. Uh, I, I, I think he's already got many of the tools that will serve him well. I think he's got a great jab. I think he's got uh, actually surprised me. You know, people make fun of his elbow blocking, but it kind of works for him for the most part, to be honest. I think that will serve him well. I think his takedown defense is good, not great. That will be kind of interesting to see how that goes. That's going to get a little interesting. Uh, and again, I think he knows how to pace himself. He is very, has seemingly has showed himself to be durable. Now he is coming off that head kick KO. We shall see. But I honestly feel like the jab will be the most important part of anything Dustin Poirier does. Benoit Saint-Denis 
kind of an aggressive distance closer rather than a scientific one. And against a lot of guys, that will work really well. And it may even work well against, over, over time, certainly, Dustin Poirier. That is not necessarily in dispute. But if you're a bit of an aggressive distance closer versus a scientific one, you're going to get chipped up along the way as a consequence. And um, he's got a hard jab. He can hit very hard for that weight class. He has good combinations over time. I think that's going to be the issue is to what extent does the jab pump, and if it's landing, how does St. Denis find a way around it um, if he's at the end of it? That, that, that to me is really that, – that honestly, I will tell you, I think that's where the fight's going to be won or lost is right there, is whether or not the jab is sufficiently active, sufficiently a deterrent, um, and able to maintain range. I think if, it, if that works for the most part, I think that's Poirier's fight to lose, conversely. Uh, St. Denis, by the way, going from 12 to 3 in terms of the ranking position is what you've got there. 3 for Dustin Poirier, 12 for St. Denis. That's a meteoric rise uh, up the food chain, right? Assuming he wins. Um, okay, here we go. Good question. With everything that has been released about how the UFC conducts business, through the antitrust lawsuit, how do you think the fighters feel? Will any come out and speak about it? Well, um, I will tell you what's pretty funny about that, actually. <laughs> I have spoken to maybe, let's say, six or seven UFC fighters privately about it, and most don't seem to care. Or are even, frankly, aware of it. And I talked to one guy who, uh, two guys actually, who are both highly ranked, ranked within the top five of their divisions. And one of them hadn't even heard about it. Hadn't even heard about it. Um, I don't think they think much about it. A um, couple of reasons why. One would be, you know, are they out there consuming MMA news? Some of these fighters are. You'd be surprised a lot of them are not. They might be MMA fighters, but they're not necessarily, like, locked on MMAJunkie.com all day. And as a consequence, they're not really, well, I don't know how much MMA Junkie's covering it, but you get the idea. Like, you know, they're just not really out there consuming news in a way that it's become a visible entity to them. That's the first one. The second one is they don't necessarily understand the significance for them. Um, some of these fighters I've talked to are in their mid to late thirties. And it's like, even if there is a change, it's really not going to impact me by any point. So who gives a shit? I've seen other ones say, yeah, we know all this. This is the reality that we live. And then there is some kind of dismissal that there could ever be any kind of change. So also who cares? A lot of them have families and they don't want to really want to rock the boat. It's a kind of a lot of like either don't know, don't care or moderately care, but how is it really going to affect me kind of shoulder shrug? Now, I haven't seen anyone come out and be like, this this lawsuit is garbage. I haven't seen come out someone come out and say, I really hate this. They don't speak for me. I don't know to what extent they had anybody opt out. I don't know what those numbers look like, and perhaps we'll get some clarification over time. Um, but I will tell you that they don't really seem to care I, in general or care very little from what I can tell. Now, the ones who are a little bit more visible, the guys who might have UFC gigs, the ones who are um, who are terminally online, perhaps they have more to offer and they simply don't say anything by, or by out of concern for the future of their career and their relationship with the UFC. Um, that's a question for them. I couldn't answer that for, you, for them. 
I, t- I tend to think that's I, I tend to think that what we got when Project Spearhead was around, right, this attempt at unionization, we did here. And I talked to several fighters at that time who were like, "Yeah, I just they either didn't trust the process that it would that their vote for you know to put their name on a card for unionization that that would be kept secret." So there was like a a, a lack of trust in the process, or they they feared retribution. And even if the UFC was like, actually, we won't do any retribution, guys can vote how they want, which they said several times, and you can believe that or not, but that's what they said. Uh, they were scared to take any risk. Um, I mean, I, I would just say with the fighters, like, you know, when they get mad at MMA media for like, hey, fighter pay is low or whatever, I just don't take any of that shit seriously, even a little bit, you know. I, I don't know that it's the job of MMA media to promote causes that serve better fighter pay. I think the job of the MMA media, such as they have one anymore, is to highlight power imbalances that negatively affect the industry. In this particular case, that would be one such instance. Um, and so I do think that we have a job to follow that that reality. But the fighters don't seem to either be aware of these efforts, appreciative of these efforts, um, or they're outright hostile to to the efforts in certain cases, depending on whether you know what the media is proposing or what they're suggesting about fighter pay. And so, as a consequence, like I just, it's not. I, I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying I don't care what their opinion is. Like I obviously care, and if they were like you know very angry about what we were doing, we would have to take that seriously. And I want to address that in just a second, but that's not really the reality. Yes. There are some who lash out who would get really mad about it. These are few and far between in general. And more to the point, when you actually hear their arguments, they usually stem from having a low level of financial literacy. I just don't take them, but not always, not always, but usually I just don't take them very seriously. Um, so I just sort of follow the job as I understand the job to be for right or for wrong, but that's sort of where I'm at. Um, so yeah, and having conversations with these fighters, it has been illuminating. They either have a moderate amount of care, uh, which is not many of them, and most don't really care, or in some cases, high-level guys, dude, high-level guys. Uh, didn't even know about it, so yeah. <laughs> Thoughts on this new set of five-round co-main events? Do you expect to see it more through this next chapter of UFC and use these in number one contender matchups? So here's my view on this. And Chael Sonnen really kind of affected my view on this. Shouts to Chael. I thought he he told me this one time when I had him in studio for SiriusXM. He was like, it's true intuitively, but he just kind of said it in a way that had like a, a light bulb moment. Obviously, because you have two more rounds, you're going to accrue more damage. But that wasn't his argument. His argument is, it's not just that you're adding two more and so the damage gets worse accumulatively. It's that it gets exponential, right? It gets it gets, it gets, gets way worse when you go into these five-round fights. And I think that is true. I think those five-round fights, dude, are fucking brutal. Not always, obviously, but often. I think they take years off these guys' lives. Uh, and so my view on it is I do think you get a better sporting result as a consequence of having these non-title five-round, in this particular case you're asking, co-main events. Certainly you can get them for five-round main events as well in non-title situations at the apex or whatever. But you're asking about co-mains. 
I, I generally think on sporting grounds, I, I don't really know what there is to dislike about it. They are brutal, but they're so much better. And frankly, they feel they feel more satisfying if we are setting up uh, a potential number one contender, which you could be doing, for example, as you indicated, UFC 299 with the Dustin Poirier and Benoit Saint-Denis fight. That, that I mean, 12 to 3, maybe he has to get one more in there, but you can see there's a lot on the line there, right? So in that sense, I really like it. My major objection to it is because the damage is so significantly greater or at a bare minimum, the potential for what could go wrong in terms of damage is so significantly greater. I think they should get paid more. That's really my only my only issue. I think if you're going to go from, you should not make the same amount of money to fight a guy for three rounds as you should for five. It should be for more money. Now in, in boxing, if you go from 10 to 12, it's right. I mean, maybe there's some exception to this, but it's because there's a title on the line. So there's much more at stake. And that's really when you can get that extra layer of oomph. It, it doesn't change for them necessarily the amount of money, although potentially it could. Uh, it's not as one-to-one, but I do think the UFC should do that. If there's one thing I feel like they could do in an easy way, not so much to allevi- alleviate the fighter pay concerns, but frankly do right by the fighters, earn some goodwill, Pay him more. Pay him more when they fight five rounds. If Benoit Saint-Denis versus Dustin Poirier would be three rounds under any other circumstance, but because of its placement on the card and its relevance to the division, you're now tacking on two more, pay him more. Pay him more to do it. And what that can be, I don't know. I mean, we can figure all that out, but I do believe that that is a very easy, good thing UFC could do. I think the fans would be in favor of it. Certainly, you would imagine the fighters would be in favor of it as well. Um and I think they're owed to it. If you're taking on more risk, shouldn't you be financially compensated for the additional risk you are undertaking? I think you should. I think you should. It doesn't have to be double the purse. I'm not suggesting that. Um, but it should be more than what it is uh, for the standard contract, irrespective of what that you know number would be. So that's my only hang-up on it. Pay them more to do it. Uh, okay. Look, what do you think the UFC's long-term goal is for Connor? He probably only has two to three fights left max. I think that's generous. Uh, you're right, if that. Yeah, exactly. If one, excuse me, and if one of those is versus Chandler, do you think they are anticipating trying to get him to compete for a title should he win or just look to maybe book a trilogy versus Nate, win or lose versus Chandler and let him sail off into the sunset? Yeah, I mean, I think the UFC has probably made peace with the reality that the best that they can hope for is to manage his decline. It would be nice if he could come out and beat the brakes. I'm speaking as like a UFC exec. Beat the brakes off Chandler, and then you could put him in a Leon Edwards title fight or something, you know, just shoehorn it or, or you know, the winner of him versus Bilal or whatever. Uh, or even a BMF title, like whatever. And it's something where there is like a, you know, a tangible something on the line. Uh, but I think that they probably have, you know, made peace with the reality that whatever he once was, that's not coming back. That's not walking through that door. That's not going to be a thing that they can really lean on. And so what could we maximize with the time that's remaining? I think your setup is probably about accurate. You're going to have the Chandler fight. That by itself could be the last. Uh, there's a couple more paydays that could be in play depending on how that goes. And then that's probably going to be it. I mean, the idea he's going to fight for, you know, regularly for two or three more years seems absurd i i you know i i perhaps you feel differently perhaps he feels differently the the future is quite literally unknowable but i would imagine 
they have not moved on from him, but they have moved on from he's the sort of centerpiece of the organization in terms of standouts on the fighter roster. Still is and will be for many reasons a very important and in his own way a standout figure, but not what he was in 2016, not what he was in 2017. We are well past that. And so I think that they've probably kind of pivoted to let's maximize the time he's got left and then we'll just be done with it. I think that's it. And if they can shoehorn that into a title fight or a BMF title fight, they will. All right. Uh, this one's got 17 likes. Jesus. All right. I'll read that one. Uh, Luke, you... Here, let me highlight it. Here we go. Luke, you often talk about how you're a washed piece of shit. Yeah. Can you break down how you have found your body has changed with your 20s, 30s, and 40s in terms of strength and conditioning? Recovery, general aesthetic, uh, big fan from New Zealand. Uh, okay, this one's pretty simple. Um, conditioning, I don't know because I've not really fully tested it. Obviously, I, I'm lifting four day. I have a four-day split, so I'm lifting four days a week, but I'm not really doing any kind of hill sprints, swimming laps. I'm not doing jujitsu. So on the conditioning side, I don't have much to report. I would imagine that I'll get to this in a second. The recovery is going to be substantially reduced, but there's that. Strength. So here's the problem. Um, here's what I'm dealing with now. I have a messed up rotator cuff. I have a messed up left knee. I have a jacked up right ankle. And I have a messed up left toe. So these are all things that I'm trying to work around. Uh, and, I, and because my shoulder and rotator cuff is messed up, I've got a whole issue with my bicep tendon on my right arm. I am working out in a way to get past that. So they've got these enormous amount of imbalances. One of the differences between being in your 20s and 40s is simply the accumulation of life. I now have these issues I'm trying to bulletproof around or solve for in ways that simply didn't exist. So that's one. But really the biggest issue is like peak strength. I feel like I could still be, I feel like I'm still pretty strong. Not what I was in my peak of my 20s or even early 30s, but not necessarily a huge drop off. Um, so there's some drop off there, but not, not a, not a major one general aesthetic. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. Uh, the recovery is the big one. It just takes so much longer to recover and the corners you used to cut, you can't cut anymore. You have to get the appropriate amount of sleep. You have to have the appropriate amount of hydration. You have to have the appropriate amount of caloric intake. And to me, I would also argue the way in which you time that. Uh, also has to be really well accounted for and done in a way that maximizes any kind of time. Because if you don't, you're just going to have really very quickly suboptimal results and you're going to be able to feel it. You just have to take significantly greater care to get to the same place you once did when you were cutting corners before and drinking beer and eating nachos and sleeping six hours instead of eight or nine or whatever. You can just get away with it. You cannot in any way, shape, or form, get away with that in your 40s. Just, you just, uh, certainly I cannot. I cannot. Um, so, you know, the strength, not a huge drop-off. Conditioning, I don't have a great answer for you. Aesthetic, you know, I've never exactly been UL Romero. Uh, the recovery has been a huge challenge. It's very, very hard to recover anytime quickly. So I take great care about my hydration. I take great care about my sleep because otherwise it will, I will be fucked. I don't have any, I don't have any wiggle room, you know. So I was asking, is Jared Cannonier the logical next fight for Usman? I wouldn't hate it. I don't know if logical is the next answer. Once Jared comes back from injury, it would allow Usman more time to better acclimate to 185 and allows Drakus and possibly Hamza to get title shots out of the way. 
Sure. I think there's a lot of directions you could go. I mean, Kamaru is 0-1 at middleweight. You could you could go a few different directions with that. You could go a few different directions with that. Like that, the idea that it's like, hey, we got to put him in title contention. I, you can fight someone, anyone in the top fifteen, and I feel like it'd be an okay fight. You know, um, not maybe closer to top ten, but still, there's a range of possibility. Um, how awesome is it to have your own MMA statistic? I've seen people refer to the Fighter 35 Plus at 125.70 stat as the Luke. It's not even my stat. I got it from somebody else. I don't remember who it was. I just I just signal boosted it. So let's be clear about that. But this shit is your legacy in the sport, I guess. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't do the math on that. I forget who did. I wish I could fucking properly attribute it. I don't remember. It was somebody on Twitter. I don't remember who it was. Um, but they just attributed it to me because I had a bigger audience than the other guy. But... There was the other guy. In any case, I, I definitely did the most amount to popularize it. Only because it just drives me nuts when people... In MMA, a lot of... Maybe this is not true where you're from in Europe, if you're watching, or Australia, I don't know. Or maybe even Canada, I don't know. But here in uh, Estados Unidos, there are a lot of MMA fans who don't watch other sports and just don't have an appreciation for what age can and often does mean. And you see it on the fighters too, and, and this you you expect it from the fighters because they have this like inherently at all times we can do this, we can figure this out, I can win, I can I can beat this guy. I know people like always get on Anthony Smith for saying like who he can beat. Anthony Smith doesn't say things that different from other fighters I've talked to in private. <laughs> like everyone's like, oh, Anthony Smith says all the stuff like you know you know. He could beat this guy, and he could beat that guy, and Jim Miller can beat Brock. Now, maybe on the Jim Miller-Brock thing, maybe he's on his own. But I'm telling you, man, the amount of private conversations I've had with some of these guys and who they said they could beat and under what circumstances, you would think that they're out of their fucking mind. He just articulates it in a way that, you know, is unfettered, and so people, you know, get after him for it. But he is not in any way an outlier in terms of, like, how far he thinks he can go in terms of beating guys. But... The reason I love this stat is it's it's a it's a brutal stat, but it's finally a little bit of like mathematical evidence about the effect of age and performance in excellence. There are so many guys who like you have a rough idea, you know, your prime is roughly 32, but that's not really true for heavyweight and blah, blah, blah. And I know we're talking 125 to 170 here. By the way, if you're asking what does it mean for 185 on up, the answer is 50-50. That's what the math shows is 50-50. But in that in that cohort of 125 to 170, uh, 35 and up, you know, you're you're not doing shit basically. It's such a a, a unambiguous. Again, there's no magic that once you hit 35, all of a sudden the wheels fall off. But this is the thing with Volk that I keep like keep talking about. You know, I, I, I listen, man. He might go in there and beat the brakes off Ilya Teporia. And if he does that, you would be maybe a little bit surprised or something, but probably not that surprised, right? Because we the, the, the what we think about him, we have such a high opinion of him. We have such a high opinion of his ability. We have such a high opinion of him as a sportsman. Like, people like him a lot. Me too, me included, hand raised. But the reality of the numbers is often what you see is that there is a disconnect between when fandom shows up 
and when it should show up based on when guys are actually making a turn. There is a big discrepancy between them. And so not only is it hard to win at the top, what does he have, five title defenses or something? Some absurd, that's already varied. Dude, how many UFC fighters ever win a title and then defend it three times? Like You could count them on, what, your hand or something? Or, or whatever, the number is very low. Like He is among the ranks of the highest achievers. But the turn he made, to me, started around the Chad Mendes fight and maybe even slightly before it. You were already in that turn by the time he was decisioning Jose Aldo. And then you had the three max fights and everything else. You were already there then. And the fandom wasn't there then. They were not ready or observant or understanding or whatever. That's just that's the way fandom works. It's not an indictment. It's just the natural order of things. As a result, there is this gap between when I think they should be starting to get celebrated and by the time they, they have to go and he had to beat Max and then do it twice and then everything else he's done. It didn't show up until there was this overwhelming show of force. But that once you begin to see that overwhelming show of force, in general, they can only do that for a very brief period. It's almost the beginning of the end. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it really is true. Unless they start doing it in their 20s like John Jones or something. Like John was beating up guys at 23. Very different scenario. But if they start to hit their peak at 32, and then they have like this nice couple year long reign up to 34, clock's ticking. Sand in the hourglass is moving. These lighter weight divisions are absolutely unforgiving. And so I am not making some kind of bold prediction that because of this stat, Volk won't win. But rather, if he ends up losing, it is a reminder. And of course, coming off the head kick KO doesn't help. But again, people are asking me, oh, what's the difference between being working out in your 20s versus your 40s? What was my first answer? The accumulation of life over time is the first and biggest one. Tore my ankle when I was 14, tore the same ankle in the Marine Corps when I was 22. My right calf muscle doesn't look the same as my left one. Right? Over time, that has enormous implications. To say nothing of degraded ability based on reflexes or whatever. Just the accumulation of the weight of life begins to have an effect. So coming off the head kick KO, that's another one. Like these are very, 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 in high-level prize fighting, difficult circumstances to beat. Um, and I think finally you have a number that people, it's so predictively powerful, not always, but it is predictively powerful, that people are finally getting like a wake-up call. Like, dude, in these lighter divisions, your margin of error is insanely thin. Your, your reign at the top will in all likelihood be very, very short. Um, and a lot of times the fans don't show up and media, media support too. I don't mean to just bag on the fans awareness. Let's just say about someone's greatness. It often doesn't show up until it's not too late, but later in that process. So this is why, for example, the EA curse, right? It's like, oh, these guys are cursed. No, there's no curse. The reality is you have to do enough work and get enough wins and it takes a really long time to do this, such that by the time you're even selected to be on that, you've already done probably all the best work of your career. And so then you get on there and you lose, but it's because they're selecting people at the very, very, very end of their prime. Because people think primes last forever, they don't. People think primes can, you know, oh, he had a five-year prime. No, the fuck he didn't, man. So they end up getting picked at the end of their prime, then they go on the cover of this thing and everyone's like, oh, it's a curse. No, no, it's math. It's math. 
They just waited till they were very late because it takes that long to get that kind of visibility and that kind of push. And then the whole thing comes undone. That's, that is a very, very common scenario that we see all the time in these lighter weight classes. And uh, so, you know, listen, hope the best guy wins. If that's Volk, it's Volk. If it's a Taporia, it's Taporia. You know, we do that. We did that fun prediction segment on MK. It, it's just for fun. I mean, it is just that. It is just for fun. There is really no other significance to it than that. But that stat to me is finally people can stop pretending that age means a thousand different things. It has a wide variance. That is true. 35 for one guy in one weight class is not the same for 35 and necessarily in another weight class. But when you group them in such a way, all of a sudden the light bulb comes on that in those weight classes, 35 is for elite fighters a damn near death sentence. All right, let's see here. Luke, uh, it's a long... Okay, I'm not reading all that, but what's the question? It's starting to bother me how much... Excuse me, how content people are with this idea of Gaethje being able to wait out until he gets a title fight. I think he should fight Max at 300 or sometime in spring. Dana has already announced that Islam will be fighting the winner of Olivera Saryukin in the summer, which would mean, at best, Justin gets to fight in the autumn. Obviously, Ali Abdelaziz is gunning hardest for the Gaethje Makachev fight in the summer as he manages both, yes. But realistically, Justin would not have fought in over a year, and I think he absolutely should have to fight before late autumn of 2024. Oliveira's coach made a good point about not fighting for over a year being a bad thing, and I think nowadays we become so comfortable with athletes just holding out until a title fight, and it diminishes the rest of the competitiveness of the division in the sport. So, I wouldn't... I would... Okay, I would agree under a couple of different circumstances. One, if they have a title that matters, and I don't, I don't mean to diminish the BMF, but what I mean is, like, for example, with this John Jones thing, I said this on MK yesterday. Listen, here's my best guess, and I know you're asking about Justin Gaethje. Let me come full circle on this. Here's my best guess about why John is doing what he's doing, which is I want to hold on to the title while I fight Stipe, even though he doesn't seem to have any intention of unifying, Tom Aspinall is just fucking flapping in the breeze because he can't really ever get ahead until there is a unification process that he can take advantage of, and John is preventing this, right? So there's this real natural tension between I have a vanity fight that I'm offering to a guy who hasn't fought in three years, and the last time he did fight, he got viciously KO'd. People keep being like, well, he's got to fulfill the Stipe fight. Why, motherfucker? Why? That fight should never have been made to begin with. Oh, it's best ever versus, you know, best heavyweight ever. It's like, that's a fucking talking point that a promoter came up with. Yes, Stipe's resume is excellent. But, like, dude, we're so far past the point where, like, the guy who he, that built that resume, the guy who's there now is not the same guy, right? I mean, you're trying to buy what glory is there on the resume by beating a very diminished version of him. I hope people can see through that. It seems like most people can, or a lot of people cannot, but most of you should be able to see through that. It's just a talking point. Like, that's not a more interesting or better fight under any circumstance. It's just a guy who built up his name because he did great things, but he is not that guy anymore. So I, I don't get that part. But in any case, because you got this vanity project and the title fight not in, contra, in, in, in conflict, you've got this issue. But my argument is anybody who holds a title has a responsibility to the other people who want to contend for it in that division. That doesn't mean he has to award it an opportunity to everyone, but what that means is it has to be in um, you know, reasonable rotation. And being off for a year is not reasonable rotation if you're an actual weight class champion, hence the creation 
of this interim title. So in that kind of circumstance, I would, ag I would agree that you do have an obligation to defend it, and I would agree with you. To get back to the John part, why do I think he's doing this? He's doing this, here's my best guess, not like I can ring him up, but my best guess is because if you remove the title, you remove pay-per-view points, and so the best way to make money is to hold on to the title, but of course that now corrupts the process as well. So this whole thing is just a function of how the UFC creates interim titles, doesn't award them the unification that should be there, how they structure pay into the titles. The whole thing is just a fucking mess. Um, so I get why John is doing what he's doing, but like that's not my concern. My concern is the health of this division. You already let Francis go, and now you're creating a vanity fight that by the day gets less attractive. I, I never had interest in it to begin with, although I recognize it's much bigger. Uh, and if it had happened on time, I would be less of an uh, uptight about this. But now that it didn't happen on time, I think the circumstances have changed. In any case, I, if you're a weight class champion, you have a responsibility. And if you're not going to defend it like they do in boxing, just fucking drop it. Just drop it. Or the guys can strip them. Whatever. That's one circumstance. Another circumstance is to your point. Like if you're on a title track, you have to kind of do what Bilal Muhammad has done. Not necessarily get all the amount of wins before getting a title shot, but you need to be in rotation. You need to be in rotation. Like what Colby Covington's doing where fight once a year, sit out, fight once a year, sit out. To me, when everyone else is actually staying active and you're trying to bank and surf off of someone's name value while remaining inactive, that corrupts the process as well. So that's another scenario you could point to. What you're trying to say is Justin is kind of doing that. I'm less moved by that argument. Certainly the idea that the BMF title needs to be in rotation is not true. It wasn't in rotation at all until they just resuscitated it. And then now it's back. So that is not true. He's also a senior level fighter. And I think senior, how old is Justin Gaethje? Was he 34? Let's see. Justin Gaethje is 35. When is he 36. Uh, he just turned 35 in November, so he's a fresh 35. Um, again, crossing that demarcation line of 35, I do think you have a right to be selective about who you fight and when. Um, up to a point, I get your point, that like sitting out there and waiting for Makachev feels a little gross. Do you really want to create an interim title if they're in? Well, no, because Makachev's going to stay active, so that's not really in play. Um I don't feel it as much for just for for Justin as you do. I don't feel quite like he has to get out there as much as you do. Also, like it's not like there's a row of contenders really ready to take over. Now, if Benoit Saint Denis goes in there and just fucking blows the doors off Dustin Poirier, you get to a more interesting situation where we can revisit this conversation. But if Dustin wins, and you know Dustin's coming off that loss to D Justin himself. I'm less moved by that argument. I'm I'm less moved. Your, your mileage may vary, but I just feel like um, it could get to the point that you have worried about. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, Max and Emmett, is it the next fight to make? I, I, I think it's a fight you could do. I think it'd be really bad for Max's health, but I think you could do it. Um, same thing with the Justin Gaethje. I mean, dude, everyone that m people want Max to fight are guys who are going to take years off of his life. Have you noticed that? Everyone's like, yo, Max, why don't you go fight uh, fight this fucking silverback gorilla who could bench press 4,000 pounds? Why don't you go fight him? It'd be a fucking great fight, dude. Max is tough. 
It's like, dude, why do we keep wanting to have this guy fight insanely difficult fucking brutalizing fights, right? Not just like difficult fights, but brutalizing fights. Um, but yes, the Emmett or the Gaethje ones for me work. And if Gaethje's not up for it, then yeah, you could do it. Um, and I think Max is in a, this sort of rich Frank, Franklin position where he has to kind of take tougher fights than he might ordinarily want to just to kind of stay relevant. Someone's asking the most outrageous thing you saw while working as a bouncer. Jesus. I mean, I've seen some pretty outrageous shit, dude. I saw a lady get thrown down a flight of stairs. Um, <laughs> I saw a guy get a chair wrapped. I mean, I've told you this story before where a guy pulled a knife on us. And uh, we had another guy fucking wrap a chair around his head. That was a big one. Obviously, seen a million brawls. Um, seen girl fights with the hair pulling in the bathroom. Seen that. Uh, what else have I seen? I don't know if I've ever told this story. This was not a uh, this was not an outrageous thing in terms of fights, but uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story. Maybe I have. I can't remember anymore. So I, um, when I first moved to New York City, one of the first things I did was like I'm just going to go work the door at a bar, and I found this actually this Irish bar. Some of these Irish bars in New York are interesting, dude. I don't know what the story is, but like this one was a bar, like a full-on bar, but it was attached to kind of like this dormitory, almost like a hostel. And like Irish people would come, sometimes work at the bar, and then stay in this hostel for not long, maybe the summer, a few months or whatever, and then be on their way. And it was kind of like this like Irish depot. It was really kind of interesting. I don't know what the story is with that, but like New York City is one of the few places I've ever been in this country where you can go to an Irish bar and the people working in the Irish bar are from fucking Ireland. Like, you know, usually it's some guy who's like, yeah, my name is, um, you know, Steve Jenkins. I'm from Utah. Um, I traced my ancestry to Lithuania or something. That's the guy who's working at the Irish bar. No, dude, New York City, you'll get it. You'll get him. Like, where are you from? Galway, you know, shit like that. But, um, so I worked at one of these bars that was like this. And, uh, and uh, I'll never forget this. I was one night I had to, they, they wouldn't let me sit inside, uh, when I was checking IDs at the door, they would make me sit outside and it was cold as fuck, man. And I used to, I used to resent them for making me do that, but they, uh, they, it, it was a good place to work, but I didn't like that. So they made me do that one time. And, um, I smoked at the time, uh, cigarettes. I must've been 22 or something. I don't remember. And I remember I had, I, I was like trying to light the cigarette inside the wind, you know? And with like the lighter here, like this. And uh, somebody, I was standing, the door to the, the entrance was to my left. So I'm standing this way from it. So I'm like trying to light this thing. And the person who had walked out, he had walked out with another person. So it was two men. And the first guy says to me, hey, uh, stay warm out here. And I looked up, <laughs> and you're not going to believe this. Maybe you will. Again, if you've heard the story, you'll remember it. It was Kevin Spacey. It was Kevin fucking Spacey. <laughs> and uh, and this is, you know, pre all the shit that we now know about him. You know, this was, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know when Usual Suspects came out, but I think he was, he was definitely an A-list celebrity by this point. And I was like, I was starstruck. I was like, holy shit, it's you. And he was like, yeah, it's me. And then he made small talk with me. Um, about like, you know, hey, they make you stay out here or something, blah, blah, blah. And then he was with another guy and they they left and they walked off. Um, and that was it. But that was strange. That was I remember telling my friends, I was like, dude, you won't believe who was in the fucking bar today. 
Kevin Spacey, and he fucking said hi to me. It was really bizarre. Um, so that was a strange occurrence. That was a strange one. You're you're talking about violence, but that was one. I'll also tell you this one very quickly. The, this is a true story. So the first day I moved to New York City, I didn't have a place. I was sleeping on my friend's couch on, what was it, um, 23rd and 3rd. There's like an art school there. Or there was. I don't know if it's still there. I was sleeping on his couch. And uh, I was watching the local news. And they had Mayor Bloomberg at the time had just outlawed smoking in bars. He had just outlawed it. And there's a part of like near the Lower East Side of Manhattan called Alphabet City. And this is where it's like the streets are like literally A Street, B Street, C Street. So it's called Alphabet City. And Alphabet City has changed in quality over time. It's like all gentrified now. But 2002, it was getting better. People were starting to party there, but it was still a little rough. And apparently this one bar in Alphabet City, I think it was called like B Bar. I think it's actually the name of it. It was on B Street. This They had a giant 300-pound fucking enormous bouncer. I wasn't there. I watched it on the news. And he told these two guys, these two, they were described as two Asian males who were smoking in the back, and the guy told them to stop. And one of them blew smoke in the bouncer's face. Well, you know, you saw pictures of the guy, and I was like, fuck, dude, that's a ballsy thing to do. So um, he picks them up and is escorting them outside. One of them was an expert. I forget the name of the art, but he was an expert in Filipino knife fighting. So he pulls out a fucking switchblade and fucking sticks the guy inside of his thigh in the femoral artery. And uh, he bled out right there and died. He bled out right there on the floor of B-Bar and died. Um, that was my first day getting there. And I was like, dude, people are stabbing security over smoking bans in this fucking city? Like, what did I just walk into here? This is Christ on crutches, but, you know. Um... <laughs> yeah, that, I remember that one being like, okay, what have I done here? I don't know if I've made the right call, but that, that happened. Uh, okay, let's get back to some of this here. Is Tattoo Dan Hooker the new mythical fighter? Curious if you have been following his tattoo journey. A little bit, yes. This time last year, he had zero tattoos, and now he's covered. Also, what do you think of the quality? Um, quality is actually pretty high. The question is, like, about artistically, do you like it or not? Artistically, it's not for me. Now, what I've seen recently is he had those kind of, like, shin pieces on the foot that look to be of, like, Polynesian uh, origin. Those are very good tattoos. I have high remarks for them. He's got some chest piece that I don't love, but again, if he likes it, it's all for him. It's a, I have to, you know, examine it closely. It seems like it's a well-done tattoo. I don't really know. I've not, I saw now he has a sleeve. I've not had a chance to look at that in detail. He had something kind of like below, like in red, below his navel. The only issue is, I remember talking to tattoo artists about this, uh, who are MMA fans, and they they all told me the same thing. They all said Conor McGregor's chest piece, they loved right? The gorilla eating the heart. And it's like this, uh, American traditional style. And then he's got the, the tiger, which is almost like a portrait realist style on his stomach. And what they, their major complaint was, is it wasn't that either tattoo was bad. It's that when you, and I, by the way, I have made this mistake, right? And I have to clean some of this up as I go over time. I have to get this redone. I'm going to color this black. Um, I didn't tell you guys this. If you look closely, I don't know if you can see, it's hard to tell. You can see I've been scratching it here. Uh, the guy who did this tattoo and then this tattoo thinks that the guy who did this tattoo used bullshit ink. And so it itches all the time and I scratch it and it's fucked it up. 
So I have to get it filled in. But the point that they want to make was they are, these are two very different styles of tattooing on Connor, American traditional portrait realism. It's not to say you can't mix a little bit, but when you really begin to mix and match, it looks a little weird. I don't want to tell people you can only ever have one style of tattoo your whole life. That's not necessarily true. But what I would say is you should take some caution to make sure you're not mixing a bunch of different styles together in a very incoherent way that won't stand the test of time. Sticking with one kind of theme or style will typically yield better results in terms of avoiding those problems, obviously. So I, I am seeing that he's mixing and matching styles. I don't know how much he'll love that if he's doing it this quickly, you know? So, all right, let's, do we have time for a couple more on these? I think we do. Uh, okay. So let me answer this one and then we'll get to some of the donations such that they exist. All right. Here we go. Someone's got a very nice statement. Thank you very much. And he asks, um, okay, a lot is being made about Dustin's gamedness. Okay, so that's not the word. Definitely a made-up word. Not a, Well, all words are made-up words uh, for taking a fight with much lower-ranked uh, St. Denis. Very quickly, the word is gameness, G-A-M-E-N-E-S-S. -E -E it comes from dogfighting. Gameness is defined as pursuit of the fight despite the physical consequences. This is how they evaluate fighting dogs. They pursue the fight despite the physical consequences, their ears get ripped off or their mouth gets ripped open or whatever, and they still go after it. Gameness, pursuit of the fight despite the, despite physical consequences. That's what it means. So drop the D and it is a real word. It comes from dog fighting. All right, but back to your central point. For taking a fight with a much lower rank St. Denis, I feel like I remember this time around a year, a year and a half ago when there was a discussion about Dustin being offered and refusing a fight with Darius. Darius told me the same because he wasn't on his level. I don't think that's what he said. I'm wondering what has changed and or what the wager, the calculation made by DP and his management was in taking this fight. Well, again, circumstances can change rapidly. So number one, um, I don't think Dariush at the time was sitting at 12. He could have been. He's probably higher ranked. Dariush is a very, 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 again, a year ago. I know he's coming off two losses now, but uh, you know the guy who fought Gamrot, that's a tough guy to beat, and you're not going to get a lot of fanfare from it. That's one. Plus, he might wrestle fuck you the whole time, too, because he can. St. Denis, I think, probably could wrestle you a little bit, but is in all likelihood is going to offer you to be a much more exciting fight on the feet. That's one. Two, the guy has a reputation for being exciting, St. Denis. So I think Dustin likes that. Three, he might have tried to look at the other options that he had, Nate Diaz, blah, blah, blah. And none of them were coming through, and he didn't want to wait any longer. And that was simply the best available option, given the time. So a lot of times what you'll see is these guys have like a hierarchy of what they're looking for that is both like quality contingent and date contingent. Hey, I want to get a fight in in the spring. Spring passes, and they don't get it. Okay, well, now I have to adjust my calculations about what I'm looking for based on these circumstances. And I wanted a guy who's going to stand and bang with me. We don't have anybody. I can't wait any longer. I don't want to wait any longer. Let's see what else we got. So I think that's probably more the likely situ situation you had here. And again, Dustin, I think, is also 35 or will be soon. Senior level fighters are going to be a little bit pickier, but in this case, you can't even bash him for it because he's taking a guy at 12 when he's sitting at three. I just feel like over time, through the course of a year, after, especially after a loss, the calculations about what they want, if they don't, if they're first and second and third choices don't reveal themselves, fourth can look a lot different than what they wanted at one.
but once you get down there, everything is now just a different calculation. So, yeah. All right. Let's see what you got on the donations. I appreciate everyone who watches for free or not. I mean, you're the man, you're the woman, whatever. Uh, but if you've got them, we'll address them now. All right. All right. Very good. Uh, let's see. Why do fighters with sub 500 records still fight knowing they will never get that big money fight? What's the point of killing your body like that? One, um, they think that they can win. And two, what the fuck else are they going to do where they can make 200, 300 grand in a night? You're saying sub 500 records. If you're on the regional show, that's one thing. But like if you're in the UFC, you know, where are you going to get money doing what you're best at? And you might be like, well, well, they're not that good at fighting, but right. But what are they good at besides fighting in their personal life? Um, the, the, the answer is, you know, this is their best chance. This is their best opportunity. I don't think it's in any way accidental. Uh, this is your weekly reminder of what Joe Rogan said. Yes, it is. Thank you. I think about it all the time. <laughs> uh, think about it. Three, three years have come and gone. So, yeah. But again, everyone wants me to say, and you know, I'm sure eventually I will on some level, but um, I just don't want to deal with the, the bullshit. Who can give RSD a Cat Williams-like interview? John Jones could. Okay, wait. What did Cat Williams do? Cat Williams has got a big name, so you got to be popular. And he just, brrrat, he just fired bullets at everybody in a way that you hadn't heard him do before. Who would do that? Who would do that in MMA or combat sports? Um, you know, Dana White, maybe? Um, and that people would care about, too. Because you can get somebody who can just go, you know, Dylan Dance is going to say outrageously awful shit about people, but who really cares at this point? I'm not sure there is a, uh, somebody analogous, but somebody who, you know, Somebody who can just, brrrat, you know, that kind of thing. That's what you need. Who could spray the block, so to speak. All right. Nice haircut, Luke. Thanks. Was Robbie Lawler during his UFC title reign the scariest fighter alive, thinking back retroactively? He certainly had that um, reputation. <laughs> Hendricks, Rory, Condit were never the same after their clash with Lawler. Yeah. Yeah. During his run, he had that reputation. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when guys are changed after they fought, fight you, I've, I've said this to a million times. There was a documentary that was made in, by ESPN around 2002, 2001, and it was about Iowa State. No, it was about Oklahoma State or Iowa State. It was about Iowa State wrestling. No, about Iowa wrestling. Excuse me. Black and gold. And Steve Mako was on the team at the time, and someone asked him what he loves about wrestling, and his answer was to humiliate people so badly that he changes them. I was like, God damn, that is. <laughs> I thought you just wanted to win. Um, how do you gauge Dominic Reyes versus Olberg? Olberg, should there be any concern for Reyes? Yeah, sure. Sure. He's a grown man. There's an athletic commission. Olberg is showing improvement for sure. He's much harder to hit than he was when he first got to the UFC, but I think still hittable. Um. I if I were the question is like on what on what grounds are you judging the risk here? If I was his family, I would probably ask Reyes to retire. Um, I don't think it's a great fight for him. I also think if he loses, that should definitely be it. Should definitely be it. Um, but it is not. Maybe it is. It does not necessarily seem incontestable that a he will lose and B, get viciously KO'd. That does seem like a reasonable possibility, 
but not the only one. And so if you wanted one more turn of the screw, uh, I, I would be okay with that. Uh, but if he loses again like that, then I think you definitely have to call it a day. Without revealing exact figures, what is the best way for the community to support your work as a creator? Membership, donation, merch, other most bang for your buck. It's a great question. Well, partly it's my responsibility to have more consistent content. So that's the first problem. Membership would be nice. Um, yeah, I'll say membership. Merch, not really. Um, donations are great too. Donations and merch are really your number one and number two. Obviously, we sell ads against this on the, the videos, but that would probably be the best one. Um, yeah, something like that. Definitely not merch is the answer. Definitely not merch. GSP versus Hendrix would have changed a lot. Oh, yes. If GSP had lost that one, great, great call. We we're talking previously about like what fight would have changed the GOAT debate if it had gone differently. Dude, I thought Hendrix won that one. That's another great one. Yeah, that would have been one too. Now that's different because he was, he was at the end of his run. I interviewed GSP just before that fight, and he was so short-tempered. He actually lashed out at me in that one because he thought I said something I didn't. I clarified it with him, and he was cool. But in a moment, he was like, he got." you could tell he was done. He was done, done with MMA at that point. So he crawled out of that one on his hands and knees, but he did get it done, yes. And then Dana threw him under the bus right after <laughs> at the post-fight presser. Uh, seeing as uh, you're aficionado of the brutal, do you listen to other brutal acts such as suffocation, deeds of flesh, decrepit birth, stay brutal? No. Suffocation, I've heard a little bit. Deeds of flesh, no. Decrepit birth, no. Right now, I'm actually listening to a lot more hip-hop than anything else, to uh, to be honest with you. Um, so, no. The only new metal act that I'm listening to is, what do they call? It's, like, uh, it's either like 100 or 200 stab wounds, something like that. What are they fucking called? Hold on. They are, I think it's like 200 stab wounds is the name of them. Discovered them kind of by accident and they were kind of good. Uh, who is it? Yes, 200 stab wounds. And I have their song, Expirated Spatter. That's a good one. But then on top of that, I've got Daddy Yankee, Sigame Ite Sigo, Ski Mask Way, 50 Cent, Tangerine from Reef the Lost Cause. Daddy Yankee, La Nueva y La Ex, Dying Fetus, Unbridled Fury, Random Luck, Raw, Vinny Paz, Byzantine Jewelry. Oops, let me turn that off. Four stars playing. And then uh, N-Word What from Fat Trail and then Elite from Fat Trail. Those are the most recent songs I've added to my workout playlist. So there you go. Do you think it's better for Alex Pineda to stay at light heavyweight and fight Jamal Hill? I feel light heavyweight needs stability. I'd rather see him fight a good quality matchups than immediately go up and fight Aspinall. Yes, 1 billion percent. Guys, I know I made a UFC 300 card where I made that the main event, Alex versus Tom at heavyweight. I don't want to see that fight. I have no interest in seeing that fight. Zero. I think Tom probably beats the balls off of him for good reasons. Tom is big and athletic and quick and has great takedowns and is, you know, technical like... Tom and all, yes, Tom, Tom could get slept. Anybody could get slept if they get hit hard enough by him, by, by Alex. But in general, Tom should win that one 99.9 times out of 100. I don't want to see that. But people have asked me, like, what could they come up with to solve the UFC 300 problem? That's about as good as you're going to get unless they pull a rabbit out of the hat that we're not aware of. So I put it on the card because from like a mock standpoint, it gets, it sort of solves the problem. 
But like my personal interest, I would rather see him fight Jamal Hill, yes. Have you watched Eddie Hearns talk at Oxford Union? I have not. He openly states that the UFC is a monopoly and wishes Matchroom could adopt similar business practices. <laughs> I bet. I bet, dude. I bet. Is there anything to make of this? Guys, once you realize, once you fully noodle that boxing is disorganized on purpose, not because it crumbled that way. I mean, there are some things that have gone and rotted. That's true. But the balance of power is shared by design as a way to actually preserve the sport from having one entity dominate it. Once you realize that is not that that did not happen either by accident or by going into like some version of like urban blight. It just got it just became decrepit over time. No. That was designed that way, or at least by the people who passed laws to make it that way, ultimately. That's why it looks the way that it looks. When you really realize that, and people are like, oh, well, boxing is so dysfunctional. Right. On purpose. On purpose. It's intentional. It is designed that way. Once you realize that, you can understand why Eddie is saying what he's saying. Yeah, I'd fucking love to not have any of these market constraints. And I could just completely fucking take over. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> you know what, dude? I like Eddie Hearn. I like Eddie Hearn, man. I don't like every fight he makes. People got on him about the Conor Ben stuff. Uh, you know, and no, every promoter <clears throat> lies, right? Every single promoter. Even promoters you like, they lie, right? They, that's part of the job. Part of the job is lying, right? Here, see, I'm scratching that too. Got the fucked up ink in it. But he, for a guy who has to lie by virtue of his job, he also will say things that sometimes... Yes, our complete bullshit. But dude, when he's right, he's right. I, I like Eddie Hearn, dude. He makes me laugh. Like he's he's he, and he puts on good fights too, for the most part. So, um, that's fun. That's fucking hilarious to hear. Thoughts on the complaints of the boxing fan base that Noya anyway only fights in Japan. He is knocking guys out, and not getting close decisions. I mean, who could give a shit? <laughs> this is. If the only thing that you have to complain about Naoya in a way is that he fights at like 6 a.m. on a Tuesday, okay, I'd rather he not. But if it's that or um, he fights less frequently, if it's that or uh, he can't get some of the right opponents, right? Because he, he had great opponents this past year, Topolis and then Fulton, and now he's got, looks like Luis Neri coming up. Dude, these are great fights. Guys, I don't give a shit where they fight. If they're going to stay reasonably active two times a year for a champion's great and he fucking unified. If he's <clears throat> if he's going to fight guys like that, sweet. I don't really, I couldn't give a shit less. Remember, there is no combat sports regulatory body for MMA in Japan, but there is one for boxing. There is a boxing commission in Japan. Dude, it's the same kind of way in which we would navigate it here. It just happens at a different time in a way that, yeah, yeah, it'd be nice. Look, it'd be nice to go to Las Vegas and watch Noya Inoue fight. He did that previously. The the Bob Arum, what how long ago was that? I think it was like three fights ago or something. Noya Inoue. Let me see. Where was that last one? I remember watching that late at night. Um that was the yes. Yes. When he fought Dis how do you say this fucking guy's name? Uh Dismarinas. At the Virgin Hotel. That's by the way, the Virgin Hotel is next to this uh, weed store across. It's across the street from a weed store. 
uh, Medmen. It's a great store. Highly recommended if you're in Las Vegas. Uh, he fought there. Um, by the way, Jason Maloney knocked him out inside Las Vegas. And then he fought Donaire in Saitama. He fought Emmanuel Rodriguez in Glasgow. I mean, he gets around. Do you think Cejudo wasted his time retiring? Well, that depends. That depends. The fights he's getting now, he could have gotten anyway. Did he just waste three years prime? So whether or not the time off was valuable and useful to him is only something that he knows. However, competitively, did he punt on prime years of, uh, what, did he, did he punt on key years of his prime? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And I don't think that his sit-out worked to really raise his pay or change his circumstance. So if he needed the break because for personal reasons, then how could you say it's a bad thing? He needed the break. But if that was some kind of professional ploy to boost and uh, fix his situation, I don't think it worked. Luke, can I recommend some music? Yeah, sure. Hell Mode by Jeff Rosenstock. Phenomenal pop punk record released last year. Great lyrics and instrumentation. Keep up the good work. All right. Hell Mode. Yeah, I'll, I'll pull it up. Jeff Rosenstock. Is this your own band or something? All right. I got it pulled up. I'll take a look at it later. Thanks, dude. Uh, opinion on South Africa genocide case today. Yeah, in front of the ICJ. Um, you know, you guys know my opinion on this. Well, maybe not the court case, uh, but in general. Uh, I mean, I find South Africa to be acting in one of the most noble ways I've ever seen. I am absolutely and profoundly and deeply ashamed of my own government and their conduct during this time. Again, you guys know that, uh, not that I ever really supported it to begin with, but I find what the president and his administration has done to be one of the great moral stains of my lifetime. And I think that the South African case is simply unimpeachable. I don't really think that you can coherently argue that um, the Israeli military effectively used restraint and surgical operations in the way in which they have waged this war. Um, and so I think that their case is quite strong. Whether or not they will win, I do not know. And folks are like, well, they don't have an enforcement mechanism, right? But you should understand the stakes. Um, if... South Africa prevails, then I think that would act as, even though there's no enforcement mechanism, the the sort of international world order and the sort of uh, the Western order, I think, would be put on its heels in a pretty significant way, and it might actually deter future acts by other actors. On the other hand, if they end up losing, I think it's sort of like a carte blanche um, license for any bad actor in leading any kind of major military to do almost whatever they want. So the significance of it is cannot be understated. But yeah, I find what the South Africans have done, and it's not just them. I know that I saw that there's different nations that have worked in conjunction with them to put forward their case. If you've not read their 84-page argument about why it's a genocide, it's it's a it's a very strong argument. I, I, I simply, you know, I, I recognize that there's going to be a diversity of opinion on this one, and that's fine. But I, I don't even, I don't really even understand how someone could find that this argument would be wrong. I think the only argument you could make is, um, if you wanted to, that they had to, or that they have a right to do this, not that they didn't do it. Um, yeah. All right. Interesting name. Considering most starfighters are either booked or injured, is it wise for fans to be angry at UFC matchmakers for a possibly lackluster 300 card? 
I mean, yes and no, right? Like, on the one hand, C300, it's a big deal. They're kind of hyping it up, right? Like, there should be something that accompanies that that feels a little bit more satisfying than it has to this point. On the other hand, um, I, I don't know how you can have as many events as they do and stack them in the way that they're doing now and then get what people want. <laughs> like, they don't have as many stars these days. John Jones is injured, right? Ronda's not coming back, it seems. Brock's not coming back, it seems. Uh, it's funny, I'm on a text chain with, like, BC and our producer, and they keep saying, like, every day when, like, new stuff trickles out, they're like, wow, maybe Luke was right about this. And I'm like, guys, I didn't make a bold argument. Like, I didn't, like, read a crystal ball and, like, they're, they're you know, the 300's not going to be that great for X, Y, and Z reasons. I just did a fucking head count. Just do a fucking head count. Who is available in these times with what's left? Show it to me. There's not great responses. I mean, there's, fi the fights are good. They're fine. But like the blockbuster part, there's, it doesn't exist. They're, they aren't there. So unless they can pull a Ronda, unless they can pull a Brock or something like that, this is just what it is. It's just, a, it's just an obvious and ordinary process of elimination. I don't know why that's like... BC keeps acting like surprised. Like, wow, maybe Luke was right Dude, I just did a fight. I mean, I'm not like, you know, well, sometimes I make arguments. And I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be true. We're going to have to see, blah, blah, blah. And again, that's sort of the case here too. But I can look at, there's a finite amount of names. There's a finite amount of names. Here's who's available. It's not that interesting relative to expectations. Here's my guy, Zant. After last night's turd in the swimming pool, UFC 300 title <laughs> is now finally the time we can all stop pretending to care about. Oh, Ant. Oh, Ant. Ant, you're such a hater. Um, I'll say this. The answer is no. But I will say this. I think 2024 will be better in this regard. But something I said on MK. Grasso's win over Shevchenko was the exception that I think proves the rule here. But in terms of high-level women's MMA, 2023 was not a standout year. You did not get a series of super high achievers really breaking through. Suarez's return was great. I think Blanchfield is close, right? This fight has merit as an all-China affair for the first time ever in UFC history for a title fight. That's kind of an interesting historical note, and I think will be valuable for the promotion going forward. But um, you didn't see someone really go through and just have a bonanza year. You didn't. Jessica Andrade rescued things at the end. But she had major ups and downs. Rose Namajunas, I mean, what can you say about her 2023? Esparza didn't even compete. Or, you know, pick any name you really care about. Joanna Jinjicic is gone. There just wasn't a really... There was, at the end there, the fight between um, uh, Irene Aldana's last fight. I mean, that was a fun, great bantamweight fight. That was really great. But in terms of just exceptional achievement, you just didn't see a lot except for that Grasso, Grasso win against Shevchenko, there just wasn't a lot on the women's side that was super exemplary. And uh, that's not me knocking the side of the sport uh, as much to say, I think there's going to be peaks and valleys in any kind of situation. And there, that was a valley for the most part. Again, exception here or there. It was a valley. It, they didn't have a lot of standout performances. Um, and I, I don't think it should be unfair to acknowledge that. It was not a super strong year for them. I don't know you, O'Brien, and not to disparage him, but why do I sense you are a much more moral person than him, even without religion? I don't think that's true. 
I don't really believe that. Uh, maybe you believe that. I don't believe that. I actually don't. I think BC actually, BC, uh, well, you might say I'm confused too. I, BC doesn't read the news or, you know, he's not traveled the world. And I've been lucky to do that. But he is a guy who cares, I think, very deeply. I think I know him to be a family man. I know what he does on the road for the most part. He fucking works and keeps to himself. He doesn't try, honestly. He, he tries to make the staff happy. Like, dude, he's a good person, man. He's a good person. Like, he doesn't enjoy, you know, the suffering of others in the way that some of us sometimes do. Like, no, he's a good person. You know, does he take stands on Israel-Palestine? I don't know. Does he have, you know, is he an opinion leader with, like, highly informed takes on politics? You know, probably not. But um, but I do know at his core he has a heart of gold, and I am I feel very comfortable saying that. As a fellow fan of the raid and the night comes for us, please allow me to put mayhem on your radar. Okay, let's put it on my radar. I think this guy told me about this a while ago, mayhem movie. Okay. Oh, it's got Steve Yoon in it. Or Young, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. You, the guy from, uh, well, he was in Beef, and he was also in um, Walking Dead. That dude's great. All right, Mayhem. 2017 American action horror film directed by Joe Lynch and written by Matias Caruso. All right, I will give it a look. Do you think there's ever a chance we will see Shavkat and Makachev? And who wins this? Shavkat, he's much, much bigger. Also, which middleweights and super middleweights in boxing do you enjoy watching the most? Can answer with today's guys and or all time. Um, well, 160's got, I mean, it's a bit of a fucked up division right now. So 168, I mean, dude, it's Benavidez and David Morrell, two of the most, David Morrell Jr., two of the most exciting guys in all of boxing happen to be in the same weight class. I don't know if they're going to fight next. I don't know what's going to happen with that. I don't know if, where Canelo's going to fit into all of that. I don't know. I don't know any of that shit. But, dude, right now... <laughs> Right now at 168, if you guys haven't seen David Morrell Jr., imagine a very young guy who's super technical and super athletic and has super swag at the same time. Just a fucking dynamite boxer. Dynamite. And Mor and, and Benavidez is just this wall that moves into you. I mean, I love watching those guys fight. All right, we've got some results here from Othman. Uh, which card will be best, 299 or 300? Damn, 80% of you picking 299. Holy shit balls. I don't, I, I, I don't think that's crazy, but it's surprising to see the numbers that way. Luke, any advice on the best way to get sponsors in the MMA Jiu-Jitsu media space? I have over 260 million views on social. What advice would you give to those trying to get sponsors in the space? I don't know. I'm not really great at this, to be honest with you. Um this is, you're going to laugh at me, but I've actually found these resources useful, not for this particular thing, but in other ways. Have you guys ever heard of Udemy or Udemy? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's U-D-E-M-Y.com. It's one of these sort of online places like Skillshare where you can, you can pay like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever, and you can take classes on stuff. I taught uh, myself a lot about cameras on that. Well, taught myself, but I, I, you know, I, I reviewed some of the course. I paid for a couple of courses. If you guys have ever heard of Potato Jet, I didn't know anything about cameras, so I took one of Potato Jet's. I, I hate saying people's fucking names like this, whatever his name is. And uh, to like learn about like ISO and white balance and shutter speed and everything and how to like construct these things. I, I learned that from him. And, uh, and I learned basics about um, Final Cut Pro editing from another basic class that I took. You can take classes on how to make money 
on TikTok, how to make money on YouTube. And these are like well-reviewed classes and they cost like $10. So I don't know how to do that stuff, but those people probably do. Did GSP make weight during his final, during his fight with Nick, against Nick Diaz? What was the whole weight gate issue? I don't even remember. I don't even remember. I, 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 it's a good question. I candidly cannot recall. I apologize. Is it known if ESPN is happy with the UFC partnership? I think in general it is, yes. If I am not mistaken, a big reason why the UFC is making record profits is because of the ESPN deal. True. Is ESPN making money with this partnership? So John Orand of the Sports Business Journal, which is a... Uh, if you ever seen one of these things, the Sports Business Journal, it's for like C-suite executives. It's not for like ordinary donks. They don't have a super wide readership, but who reads it is like, again, executives of teams and things like that. Uh, and they were, he reported, John Oran reported that ESPN was very happy in terms of the role UFC played in driving subscriptions to ESPN Plus, that they would be the number one leader to re-sign them. So yeah, the answer is probably they're very, and his reporting is usually quite accurate. So yes, I would, I would probably say that they're pretty happy. Now, about Daniel hitting his wife last year and, uh, you know, some of the other stuff I don't really know, but um, in general, yes. Shouldn't everyone be mad at the UFC for the John and Stipe fight and not John? Also, it will be hilarious if Stipe beats John and gets an immediate rematch. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, yes. If you're structuring your contracts in a way where the guy has to keep the title to make the money that he wants, then you're fucking up the process. And if you're creating an interim title that you're not allowing for unification then you're fucking up the process. I would just like a little bit of honesty from John, which, you know, he doesn't owe me or you anything. I'm just telling you, like, getting out there and making these arguments, like, I have I have tenure and I've been here a long time and when I was 23, I was doing, like, dude, none of that shit means anything. None of that shit means anything. That's utterly irrelevant arguments that have nothing to do with matchmaking. Whatever your reason is, if it is the money for the title, then fucking say so. If this, especially if this is your last go round, what do you care? Fucking say so. But like, what I'm not gonna tolerate, just for my own media purposes, I'm not gonna sit here and listen to fucking. Well, I've you know I when I did this at light heavyweight and blah blah blah, and you know he even said shit like, it's not like you've been chasing me your whole career, motherfucker. He hadn't been in the sport that long, and you have only been a heavyweight for one fight. Why the fuck would he be chasing you for that long? You weren't relevant as a heavyweight consideration up until now. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, that that part is the part that irks me. If this is your last contest or pretty close to it, tell people the truth. Because you have to get the money and, to, and you have to have the title to get the money. Everything else is a waste of time. Luke, how many gold litter boxes do the donks have to buy for your local SPCA to get UMBC to shoot the shit in an MK Discord? None. Just hit up Mikey. We could probably work something out. Hit up Mikey. Morningcombat at gmail.com. Uh, the Israel-Hamas war is clearly awful, especially for Palestinian civilians, but what could Israel do after the horrors of October 7th? I'm actually reading a book right now called Hamas Contained. Uh, essentially on the history of Hamas as an organization and all of the battles they've had with Israel over the course of time. I will, I will put it to you very simply. This is, there's a very simple answer with any of this. Uh, it's not very complex. People want it to make, be a complex problem. It's not. It's total asymmetry. 
there is one group that is occupying and there is one group that is occupied. There is one that has a million uh, missiles and there is one that does not. There's total asymmetry here. But the reality is this. What Hamas has done is committed absolute heinous war crimes. There can be no denying it. And these are not new. They've been committing suicide bombings for a long period of time. And not just them. Islamic Jihad. And including, by the way, not even there. There have been a history of suicide bombings that are related to secular um, political parties inside of uh, Gaza and West Bank. The answer is this: until the world reckons with uh, the need and the rights for Palestinian sovereignty, there will simply be no peace. It's really it does. It's not much more complicated than that. I. I uh, the guy who wrote that book, his name is um, Tariq Bokoni. I think he's like a Palestinian Christian, but he's a he's a scholar. He studied all, all of this. And the point that he made was like internally in Hamas, like even though Gaza is getting leveled right now, internally in Hamas, they see October 7th as a major, major victory for them. And you might be thinking, how the fuck is that possible? Like the world has condemned you. Um, Gaza has been turned into rubble. Like how could you ever look at that and think that like you're winning or something? And the answer was simple. The whole point of all of that, and they overachieved in that sense, was to disrupt the idea that there could be apartheid occupation of uh, the West Bank or Gaza uh, and that Israel could live, uh, that the Palestinians would be made to live with this and, uh, and Israeli security would not be disrupted. Their whole point was to show you're actually not safe doing this. Now, again, they committed unspeakable acts in order to do this, which all of us with a reasonable mammalian brain look at in horror and reject. But at the same point, um, they have, you can either say the they've hijacked it or whatever, but um, it's a very simple calculus. If there is no reckoning with the sovereignty and the rights of Palestinians to have their own state, there simply will not be peace for Palestinians or Israelis. It's, it, it is not much more complex than that. Um, they've tried everything else. They have tried literally everything else except that. Oh, they offered them a state back in Oslo in 93. No, they did not. Uh, it had plenty of complications attached to it. So until there is reckoning with that, we are just going to be inviting more horror on every side. And I don't think really anybody wants that. I certainly do not. Thoughts on Stephen A. Smith as a TV personality in person. You know, he used to drive me nuts and I used to hate him and I didn't like him on UFC broadcasts. I've kind of come around on him. I find him fucking hilarious. I didn't really watch the Jason Whitlock thing um, because I don't really care one way or the other about their beef or whatever it was that he, uh, whatever, whatever they're bitter about, I don't really know. But um, dude, like for people who are trying to take punditry to the next level, I mean, he's the sort of standard bearer uh, of excellence in that regard. I think there's been times where he has, you know, protected the shield and bashed people in the wrong way where his understanding of the power dynamics or his support of the power dynamics should have been different. So it's not to say that I agree with everything he says or even, I don't know, much of what he says. I don't know. But um, I, I used to I used to find him contemptible. I no longer do. Mark Hunt told Ariel that he was offered millions to take a dive for an event in Australia. What are your thoughts? Probably true. And do you think dives are still around today in the fight game? One billion percent. There is no doubt in my mind you've probably watched a fight that was fixed. Um, I don't think it's all that common, but yeah, you, you've seen one. 
Fantasy matchups. Aspinall against Jones. Love it. I would pick Aspinall. Uh, probably Aspinall. Against Pereira, Aspinall. Against Jailton, probably Aspinall. Gone, I would pick Aspinall. Ilya versus O'Malley, Ilya. Ilya versus Max. That's a tougher one. Probably Ilya. Volk, probably Ilya. Shavkat, I'll take over Leon. And Bilal, probably two. And Spacey Defo wanted to... Sp- I don't know, man. I didn't ask. I didn't ask. He kept walking, but yeah, that was a weird one. Uh, if Betterbeev or Beterbiev wins against Smith and Bivol and keeps 100% knockout rate at 38, how would you rate his achievements? I'm not I'm not wise enough to tell you exactly where that would rate um, in terms of all time. That's a better question for BC. But I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll ask him that question on the show tomorrow because we're going to talk about that. I don't have enough of the breadth of boxing knowledge to give really a coherent answer to that question. Juliana Pena would give a cat-like interview. Right, but would people care in the same way? Probably not. I don't know. Luke, do you have a personal favorite superlative fighter nickname? C-Level Kane, Motivated BJ, TRT. Um, again, I went to a boxing fight when Jimmy Lang fought at the Patriot Center, and there was a dude on there who was, it was like, Steve, cut up from the butt up, Johnson. I was like, okay, well, cut up from the butt up is an interesting one. I always like the ones that fit Prodigy for BJ Penn. When he was at his prime, it just seemed so fucking cool. Um, I'm not a big one. I don't like the ones that are like Fear the Maverick, like for uh, Miranda Maverick. She's a good fighter, but I don't like like, like, like that nickname. Um, and you're, if you're talking like memes, yeah, it would be C-Level Kane is the fucking funniest one. Like in pure nickname terms. Yeah, dude, it's got to be Axe Murderer for Vanderlei Silva. Axe Murderer is always the great one. Nice haircut, Luke. Thanks. Uh, have a nice 2024. Thanks. Uh, when did your, your first hear about Lithuania? This is my home country, by the way. You pronounced my name right. No worries. Um, when did I first hear about Lithuania? In grade school when I was studying the Baltic states. Um, but th- which is not they're neighboring on them, but um, Estonia, Latvia, no, no, that's right, no, they are. That's a Baltic state. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Yeah. Here's what John versus Stipe is about: Dana throwing them a bone in order to keep them locked in UFC. John would lose leverage by saying yes to any fight. They are locked in UFC. They can't go anywhere else. He doesn't have to throw them a bone, and then John would lose leverage by saying yes to any fight. Uh, probably something to be said for that. But like, as a fan, why do I have to care about that? That's like, uh, that's a, that's a, that's an issue for John, not for me. Send you an email with a receipt of merch. Yes, I just, I saw that yesterday. So he bought merch. He bought, I believe a hoodie and didn't get it. I don't know what the story is, but I got you. Don't worry. We're going to take care of it. I'm either going to fully refund you or find you a way to get it. I'll probably have to refund you. Um, but don't worry. I got you friend. I got you. Who do you think would win between Habib and Islam? Probably Habib. I find it odd that no one really talks about that fight. Probably Habib. Are you looking forward to ADCC? Yes, big time. August this year at the T-Mobile Arena. And uh, I think they're really going to blow it up big this year. I'm very, very excited about the possibilities. Alex, thank you, Alex. Uh, Nacho says, will you be voting for Trump if the options are him versus Biden? No, I would simply not vote. Not, neither of them are going to get my vote. Neither of them. I cannot, I cannot in good conscience vote for either of them. Not, not, none of them. Just not. 
Isn't it fair to say the stakes of innocent civilian hostages being unreleased for three months have its own moral reckoning? Yeah, sure. Except that they've been offered to have released uh, numerous times. They've been rejected with various deals. Again, it's not to say that, I mean, dude, you can make any number of criticisms of uh, either side and how they've handled this particular uh, situation. All I'm pointing to you is there is really one resolution to this, one long-term resolution. It is reckoning with the realities of Palestinian statehood. Simple as that. That is what it all comes down to. By the way, if you read the history of Hamas, there's been multiple times, including during the presidency of Ariel Sharon, where they enforced unilateral on their own side ceasefires so as not to foment tensions. What you end up realizing about why Hamas is the way that they are is, one, there is a religious zealotry component to it. The other one is they have watched the other folks who take up the mantle of Palestinian liberation and nationalism who have laid down. Like, Okay, so for example, like where does Hamas really come from? Um, in 1987 and 1988, there was this agreement by the PLO and Fatah, which was the secular party of Arafat, where they agreed to do two things. One was they agreed to lay down their arms. They they agreed to be a nonviolent resistance because remember in the 60s and 70s, they were called terrorists as well. Uh, and then the second one was to recognize that um, Israel had a right to exist. And what that effectively meant was that up until that point, this took 40 years. This took 40 years for the, the, the PLO didn't exist for 40 years. But since the 47, 48 Nakba, it took Palestinian forces uh, up until that time. They wanted to recapture all of historic Palestine. And what that deal that the PLO underwent in 87, 88 was when they agreed to lay down their arms and then recognize Israel's right to exist. What that effectively meant was they were not going to recapture or even intending to recapture all of historic Palestine, that they would keep just the now 67 borders, the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza, and Gaza Strip. And that, to, for Hamas, that was uh, unthinkable. That was unacceptable. Again, one, for religious reasons, and then two, they believed that nonviolent resistance would always be met with failure over time. They feel like the only way in which to get uh, what they want or what is in the best interest of the Palestinian statehood is to have violent resistance, armed struggle is the way they put it. That's actually the word that they use, armed struggle. And now again, the methods with which they've done that have been absolutely heinous and horrific. There have been bombings, uh, suicide bombings for long stretches of time, which have only made things worse. Uh, but that's where they come from. They come from that. And there is an argument to be made about to what extent have uh, Palestinian liberation groups as they have gone nonviolent, to what extent has that been met with success? The answer is it's been met with consistent failure. And um, that doesn't mean that Hamas is correct or that I'm justifying it in no way, shape, or fucking form. Is that what I'm telling you? What I am telling you is, again, one more time, until Palestinian sovereignty is reckoned with, no side is going to enjoy peace. It is not possible. It is not possible. So yes, I mean... I fully agree that there should be uh, every effort made um, to bring all of those people home. It's been a horrific thing that has happened to them that is unjustifiable in every circumstance. But simply trying to uh, militarily um, answer this problem that uh, has been raised, it, it will not work. It will not work. Let's do something that works. Let's do something that protects innocent life on both sides. Let's do something that recognizes everyone's right to be there, both sides. Um, and let's do things that we haven't done before, which is an actual Palestinian state. That's it. Otherwise, 
just prepare for more conflict. I don't want to do that. How light of a boxer could Jake uh, could beat? How light of a boxer could beat Jake Paul at the moment? Bud Crawford, <laughs> dude, what? Wait, 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 wait. What the fuck are you asking? How light of a boxer could beat Jake Paul at the moment? Dude, are you asking me if Crawford could beat Jake Paul? Yeah. Are are you okay? Are you at? Are you asking me if Bud Crawford, Tank Davis, or Naoya Inouye can beat Jake Paul even though he's a big guy? Dude, they'd beat the fucking shit out of him. Like, I'm not even, dude, I'm not, I actually love this thing that Jake Paul's doing where he's kind of pivoting towards this slow accumulation of real boxing. I actually like that so much more than fighting the, you know, whoever the fucks who are, oh, this guy's a famous streamer. Man, I don't give a fuck about that. I don't give a fuck about that. I want to see him fight actual boxing. And the last guy he fought, you know, wasn't the toughest one. But, like, if that becomes, like, an incremental thing, well, I'm okay with that. Guys, Bud Crawford would send him to the fucking ER. Tank Davis would send him to the ER. Um, You know, Noya is probably a little on the smaller side. I don't know exactly how that would go. But I would probably bet on all three of those guys to win. I mean, there's a vast discrepancy in ability. Vast. And weight classes exist for a reason. I know what you're now. I have a better understanding of what you're saying, but yeah, dude, holy shit! No, 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 no. I'd pick those guys. Luke, can you recommend some quality striking centric gyms in New York City? Gleason's out in Brooklyn. I guess the Watt is still down there, and um, with Phil Nurse, I don't know. I actually don't know. I really don't. I be I'm talking out of my ass. I don't really know what the quality striking gyms are in New York City. That's a better question for somebody else. Yeah. Don't buy merch. I'm waiting four months and he ignores. I'm not ignoring. But the problem is it's not on my end. The problem is I'm waiting to hear back from Teespring who controls this. Don't worry. You're going to get your money. So don't worry. Uh, or or you'll get whatever you're waiting on. I didn't even know. I haven't kept up with any of the... Uh, don't, don't buy merch. I have to take that shit down because it's not really... I didn't know it wasn't working, but now I know it's not working. Or at least it's not working internationally. I think it is working domestically. It's a thing. I'll get you, my guy. All right. Um... And I'll have an update for you, uh, for you guys about him next week. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Thumbs up on this. If you would be so kind, subscribe if you'd be so kind. It's free. It doesn't cost you nothing. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll have the podcast uploaded tonight, tomorrow morning. All that good stuff. I appreciate you guys watching. MK tomorrow. And uh, until then, stay frosty, bitches.